0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about the people who work in government and politics at any level and what they do afterwards. So we talk to them about how they got started uh, being staffers, what they did while they were there, what they learned, here's some stories, and then where they've taken the skills that they've obtained there um, and how they're impacting the world today. Uh, I'm your host, Jim Papa. I am a partner at Global Strategy Group, And I am so pleased that uh, the conversation you're going to hear today is with David Clooney, the executive director of the Black Economic Alliance. David began his career in the law uh, after graduating from law school. He worked for a prestigious uh, law firm in New York City. He clerked for a judge in Philadelphia. Uh, In 2008, he took a break. And uh, served as the deputy director of voter protection in Iowa for Barack Obama's uh, presidential campaign. He then went back into the law. But in 2010, he was asked by President Obama to be deputy associate counsel for the White House. And in 2012, he moved over to the Department of Treasury, uh, first as deputy executive secretary and then as executive secretary. He left the Obama administration in 2015. He went to J.P. Morgan Chase, where he was the Managing Director in Government Relations and Corporate Responsibility. And since March 2020, he has served as the Executive Director of the Black Economic Alliance. I spoke with David on August 14th, remotely, of course, in light of the circumstances. David, welcome to Staffer. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me. It is. uh, It's our pleasure to have you. Um, I want to start kind of at the beginning. I I know that you attended SUNY Albany uh, for your undergraduate years, and I am a proud native of upstate New York. I'm from the Binghamton area. Uh, So I have to ask you, where did you grow up? And what was family life like for you growing up?
1: So I am the son of uh, a Jamaican immigrant family. I was born in uh, Yonkers just north of of New York City and grew up in Westchester County. Moved to the Bronx uh, toward the end of high school and kind of claimed both Westchester and the Bronx as home. Um, My mother is still in the Bronx. My father's in Westchester and I live in Harlem now. So um, that is where I'm from and uh, was very happy to go to the State University of New York at Albany and following my brother's footsteps where he had gone just four years before me. And what did your parents do? Uh, both of my parents, uh, so my mother was a school teacher and then eventually administrator uh, and a principal in the New York City Department of Education her whole career in the Bronx. Um, she uh, was <laughs> a very stern, strict, uh, and serious administrator. Um, and, and I grew up in a Jamaican household where um, education was always at the forefront of everything we did. So it wasn't if I was going to college, it was where, and then after college where I was gonna go, you know, pursue a graduate degree. Um, And my father was uh, for the majority of his career in banking at um, the majority of the time, a banker at Chase, a loan officer at uh, branches in the Bronx and then in Westchester, um, but lost his job uh, while I was in high school, maybe late in middle school. uh, And uh, my parents split up but um, I'm still close to both of them. And he started his own business. So he was a small business owner, owned a uh, car company called Lloyd's Lines Limited uh, that he
0: still owns now. Oh, that's really interesting because both of their careers sort of have echoes into your career uh, that, that we're going to jump into. But I have to ask, did you attend, did you, growing up, were you in the same school system as your mother? So
1: luckily, no. Uh,
0: I did not ever go to school
1: in the same district as her, but she knew way more than I wanted her to know about when our interim reports and report cards would come out. Um, so she was always waiting for them uh, before I could, had a chance to hide them. But uh, luckily for me, I, it, that wasn't too much of an issue when I was growing up. But uh, she was very involved in my education, even though we weren't in the same school district. Yeah.
0: I'm, I'm the product of uh, two teachers myself and... Hmm. Um, I can relate you know, with, with you know, parents who are very into education and also know a lot about just the ecosystem of public schools. There's no there's no fooling them. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, it, it, it paid off for you because after uh, law school, you then or rather after uh, your undergraduate years, you then went to law school at the prestigious Howard University School of Law. When did you decide to become a lawyer?
1: It was the second semester of my freshman year of college where I went into college uh, expecting to be a psychology major because I like people and and interacting with people, Um, hated Psych 101 and was looking for a major. And uh, the end of my or the second semester of my freshman year, I took a business law class with a professor named Paul Morgan, Jr., who was a practicing attorney and came in a few nights a week to teach as an adjunct professor at SUNY. And uh, the law just resonated with me in a way that no other subject I had ever taken had. It was so practical, it was so true to life, and there were no lawyers in my family. So I thought, I absolutely need to know this information. People in my family need to know this information. Um, uh, Black people need to know this information. Uh, this stuff is all so important and it's so relevant to everyday life. So uh, from then on, I was on a course to law school and, and was pretty
0: set on going right away. After law school, you then spent a few years at Paul Weiss in New York City, a highly regarded law firm. Um, There you did a good amount of commercial litigation and also a lot of pro bono work. Uh, Meanwhile, in there you also clerked for US District Judge Court Cynthia Roof in Philadelphia. Am I pronouncing her name correctly? That's correct, yes. Great. and in the summer of '08, President Barack Obama is running for president, and you were the deputy director of voter protection in Iowa on the campaign. That's right. While you were uh, doing legal work at Paul Weiss, within that uh, pro bono sphere in particular, was there a case that you worked on that sort of awoke you to, or if you not necessarily awoke you to, but you know really stood out to you that you wanted to perhaps take those legal skills? and bring them into the policy sphere?
1: Yeah, so it really was an evolution. When going to the Howard University School of Law, we are taught um, a sense of responsibility to our community to be committed to social justice. Um, Charles Hamilton Houston, who was the dean of the law school when uh, Thurgood Marshall was a student there in the early 30s, Um, coined a phrase that a lawyer is either a social engineer or a parasite on society. So we had this choice to make that we were either going to be one or the other. Um, So going to Paul Weiss, I went in with with a mind of, okay, this is my day job, but what am I going to do with this platform to help, you know, um, help uh, voiceless communities, help black communities, help Um, use the access and the place I have to to do something more than just my day job here and absolutely did that both with my pro bono work, but also I really got I went to Paul Weiss because one of the big reasons I went there, um, they had a strong history of people coming and going in and out of public service. Uh, and there were a number of people who had either served uh, in public office or uh, in the public sector before and gone back to work at Paul Weiss, or who even from their perch at Paul Weiss were involved in politics, raising money. Um, so it was really um, working with, um, working at a firm that was so politically connected, but also being there. I was a summer associate in the summer of 2004. Um, John Kerry uh, was running for president at the time against George Bush for his second term. And um, a partner there named Jay Johnson, was, uh, who was just at the time the first Black partner that Paul Weiss ever made. And he was a um, Morehouse graduate, uh, another historically Black college. Um, And he used to come on to Howard's campus to recruit. And we just formed a connection. And um, I I saw an opportunity for mentorship there. Absolutely got it. And and it was Jay Johnson in particular who... um, Introduced me to so much about politics, introduced me to Barack Obama in the summer of 2004 when he was running for the uh, for the Senate. And he himself, Jay Johnson, was working on um, uh, Secretary Kerry's campaign when he was running for president. Um, So that was just a whole new exposure to politics for me. And I caught the bug. And um, I knew even though I was going in to start my career at Paul Weiss that I wanted to at some point um, make the transition into public service.
0: And when you made that transition, it was 2010. So you went back to the law firm, did two more years there. And eventually you were, in 2010, appointed deputy associate counsel in the Obama White House. How did that transition happen? Was it through Jay Johnson or, or other uh, folks who you knew? How did you first become a White House staffer?
1: So mine was a bit of a long winding road where I went to work on the campaign in 2008. I was very fortunate To have left Paul Weiss after two years as an associate, I went to clerk for Judge Cynthia Roof in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. At the end of that clerkship in the summer of uh, 2008, I went out to Iowa. I was able to get a job on the campaign very quickly, uh, luckily, and went out to Iowa doing voter protection. And my plan was to work on this campaign, tell my grandkids uh, that I worked for the first black president one day, and go back from Iowa to New York and resume my life as a lawyer. But during my time on the campaign, uh, I just came across people that were so focused on going to D.C., uh, and I was so impressed by this, this movement that I was a part of that was so much bigger than me that uh, I started to think about it much differently, but made a very—I I had a commitment that I had to go back to Paul Weiss, and I wanted to, and I— really needed to financially, um, but that I wanted to at some point in the foreseeable future uh, make my way to D.C. So for about the next year and a half, I was you know finding every excuse to get to D.C. that I could and and, you know, just taking coffees and meeting folks and doing uh, going to open door meetings at the White House for folks who had worked on the campaign. And eventually an opportunity came up at the White House in 2010 to go in as a vetting attorney. And in fact, my first opportunity at the White House was unpaid. There was something called the associate program and people would come in for up to six months and work for free and essentially try out for a job either as a full time vetting attorney uh, in that office or to, to be placed elsewhere in the administration. And luckily for me, I mean, it, it was part luck, part grit and and a lot of hard work because I did not want to go back to New York with my you know tail between my legs. Um, but it worked out and I ended up getting a full time position uh, when one became available that fall uh, of, of 2010 to be a vetting attorney uh, at the White House.
0: I did not know that there was that option of of working for a period of time unpaid. And here you are, <laughs> experienced attorney, you've clerked, you've worked on the campaign, and yet still there's this, uh, you know, almost a little small little doggy door that they make people crawl through just to see that, you know, you've got the the will to become a staffer. I've never that's heard a, of that.
1: That's a great way of putting it. My parents thought I had lost my mind because they said, "Well, let me get this right. <laughs> oh. You got this great job at this prestigious law firm where they're paying you more money than we've ever made and, you know, my Jamaican family, I did all the right things by going to college, going to law school, getting a job at a prestigious law firm, and they just thought that was it. You know, I had arrived and that's where I was going to make partner there of and course. be there forever." Yeah. Um, and when I, when I made the move to the White House, they were like, this is not a job. You get paid for a job. You're volunteering. <laughs> um, so they said, what happens at the end of it? Do you get to go back to your law firm? I said, don't worry. It's going to work out. And, and one of the proudest moments for me was when I got to introduce them to President Obama upon my departure from the White House, uh, going to Treasury. And we took a picture in the Oval Office with the president. And my mother's crying. My father's you know, getting teary-eyed. And, and I, <laughs> my father leans over to me and says, OK, maybe you knew what you were doing.
0: Oh, uh, that is beautiful. That, that is such a wonderful moment. Uh, you know, folks who get to work in the White House do, at a certain level, get to have that, uh, that goodbye, that departure ceremony with the president. And it is, uh, it's almost surreal while it's happening, but it, um, it's one of those things that you look back on and, you know, uh, you know 50 years from now, you, you're, if you're thinking of 20 things that happened in your life, that moment is probably going to be one that stands out.
1: Absolutely. And, and the vindication that I felt from my father, you know, <laughs> in particular, thinking I was a crazy person for all this time, uh, it, it felt pretty good.
0: Yeah. Now, now uh, talk about the role that you played within the, the White House counsel's office. You uh, mentioned vetting. Specifically, what were you doing when you were vetting uh, potential presidential appointees?
1: Sure. So my day job, and, and let me say this, anybody who is uh, not just lawyers, but any staffer at the White House, you have a day job and then you have, you know, whatever comes across your desk on any given day. Uh, my day job was vetting potential appointees for um, appointment to President Obama's uh, cabinet at, at any or to his um administration rather, there are 4,000 plus um, political appointments for any president to make. And it is a full-time job um, sourcing candidates and vetting candidates and essentially doing a risk assessment of um, what things are out there that could come up during, particularly those who require Senate confirmation. Um, so what could come up during their Senate confirmation that could either be embarrassing to the president, could be a you know potential conflict of interest, or just could otherwise be problematic. So um, it was a full-time job of essentially cross-examining um, candidates for appointment who like to give, let's say, a rosy account of their past, both work, personal, financial, and otherwise, and it's really our job to, to get beneath the surface and figure out everything that's there so there are no surprises uh, and that you're fully prepared to um put forth the the best foot for any candidate who's uh, going to put themselves on a public stage and in some cases they were just uh, people were precluded from serving for financial conflicts of interest or you know or other reasons
0: obviously all the candidates who get to the point of presidential appointment are very qualified they've got you know really interesting professional backgrounds but you've got to find those things that as you said could be potentially embarrassing or disqualifying were there any questions that you asked that were particularly illuminating or any, um, you know, any things that you looked for that might be concerning as a as a vetting attorney?
1: It really was a case-by-case basis. And we worked with the FBI who did, uh, depending on the level of the appointment, um, pretty thorough background investigations. In some cases, they're looking into people's whole lives. Um, and, and it was interesting, the, the things that got people tripped up. Some of the typical things, uh, you may remember a name, Zoe Baird from um, the Clinton administration, and uh, she got caught up on uh, what we call nanny taxes, not paying taxes on um, a, uh, a domestic worker who was living with her family. Uh, and there's a certain threshold of hours if they're working for you for more than a certain number of hours. Um, you need to treat them as an employee, pay taxes on uh, on their employment and so forth. And a number of people got caught up uh, on that particular thing, as well as um, not paying their their cleaning people silly things um, so we, we figured out this category of, of very early questions that were typical tripwires for people and, and were able to ask those but then there were some there were some pretty juicy um, <laughs> situations that people got themselves into where uh, two things one I remember a number of candidates saying um, you now know me better than my spouse does <laughs> um, <laughs> and and others where we had some you know pretty just, interesting conversations with people and said, look, you know, for our perspective, this this is not preclusive and we're willing to move forward, but it's probably something you want to talk to your family about or, you know, talk to your spouse about in particular before in the event that this becomes public. And some people would say, I'd rather not go forward and thank you for the opportunity. I'm going to, you know, go back to my normal life. Sure. Uh, so it, it's interesting to see just how personal a lot of these things are. And, and it's tough. I, I have a ton of respect for the people who put themselves and their families um, on the public stage to be picked apart you know, by people who have never known them, especially as the social media world was taking off with Twitter and the like. Although that was an interesting thing too. Twitter was a real problem for people. Um, social media was, but Twitter in particular because it was so new. Um, and I remember at one point having to tell the uh, then CEO of Twitter, Dick Costolo, uh, to tamper down the tone of his tweets, particularly when he's talking about um, foreign policy, um, because he was being vetted for a commission, not a full-time position, uh, just a, a volunteer commission on telecommunications and security. Um, and and he, he, was, he was understanding more than I expected him to be. Uh, but it was an interesting uh, phenomenon of kind of life and uh, politics happening
0: at the same time. And every few years with Twitter, it's just harder and harder to get people confirmed. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly right. Once the vetting process is complete and you all make a recommendation to green light it, if something goes sideways and there is new information that comes out that causes embarrassment to the White House or for that nominee not to succeed through the process, that is very public. It's extremely embarrassing. And ultimately, I know what happens is there's a call from the West Wing that says, how did this happen? Um, Did you ever deal with a situation like that? And, you know, without uh, giving us too many details, uh, you know, what happened and how, you know, how'd you deal with it from there? So, Jim,
1: I will tell you, this literally kept me up at night, many nights, uh, because you, you, hope you find everything you think you did. And sometimes things come out after the fact or sometimes these candidates do something after the fact that uh, that becomes problematic. So luckily for me, I, I got out unscathed and there was nobody that I vetted that became uh, embroiled in any major controversy. Uh, in fact, I'll say, and, and obviously I'm biased, the Obama administration did an excellent job of hiring, you know, really sharp lawyers and folks with, you um, with with good background to be able to dig into these issues, and they took it extremely seriously. So we didn't have a a ton of scandals to the point where there was a political story after I'd probably been there for about a year (laughs) that came out and said, um, scandal for Obama administration, soon to come, statistics say, because by this point (laughs) in most presidential uh, administrations, there had been some major scandal about a, a nominee who got embroiled in some kind of scandal and it hadn't happened. But I will say... Before I got there, a good friend of mine who was in the office, another vetting attorney who shall remain nameless, because he's a very good friend of mine, and, and he taught me a lot of what I know and is responsible for me getting there, um, <laughs> vetted a candidate who got caught up in you know a, a tough situation. And there was, in fact, an article that said, who vetted XYZ <laughs> you know, nominee? Uh. And it was, my boss framed it and and used to bring it to meetings and essentially, uh, or it it was up in somebody's office and it was an example of what not to do. And and he was like, I'm just going to leave this here, (laughs) just for everybody else to just make sure that, don't be that guy. Uh, So it it happens, unfortunately.
0: Oh, that's the ghost of Christmas future right there. Don't go down that path. Exactly. Um. Okay, so in 2012, uh, you left the White House Counsel's Office and you went into the nerve center at the Treasury Department, first as Deputy Executive Secretary, and then later as the Executive Secretary. Now, I had spent uh, a little over a dozen years on Capitol Hill before I went into the White House. And there were a lot of things about working in the White House, uh, but the administration generally that were new to me, that even though I'd had what I thought was a ton of experience in federal government, uh, there were roles and processes that were brand new and um, you had one of those roles. The role of executive secretary is unique uh, in uh, compared to Capitol Hill where there is no um, corollary job there. Could you talk about what that office and what that role is for the secretary?
1: Sure. It, it's a really subjective position that means different things at different agencies. And I was lucky to go to uh, Treasury, where the executive secretary is essentially an air traffic controller, and I call it quality control, chief quality control officer for all things going to and coming from the front o- from the front office of the secretary of uh, the Secretary of Treasury, the Deputy Secretary, and the Chief of Staff. Uh, it is part of the Chief of Staff's office, but you are the the executive secretary is uh, part of the senior staff, uh, the secretary's senior staff, and essentially your job is to make sure that you are using the secretary's time most efficiently, particularly with respect to paper. So for example, when we first got there, um, I remember uh, people would try to send in these 20-page memos to the secretary about something he needed all of, you know, two bullet points on, and vice versa. They would sometimes give him a, a one-pager or something that he had no idea about and was about to go on TV and talk about. Um, so it was our job to have a very good sense of what the secretary needed for, whether it was a, you know, a trip to the G7, whether it was a memo to the president, or, you know, an interview he was going to do on TV. It was all about using the secretary's time most efficiently. And that was everything from making sure the right people are in a prep meeting um, to making sure a memo is right in form and substance to making sure they have the proper preparation for uh, a, a big meeting of global leaders. Uh, so it was it, it was an interesting role. And I, one of the things I remember fondly was people did not like the executive secretary's office very much because we were often telling them what to do, how to do it and when to do it. And we were you know, sending things back to them and saying, we need it back in a half hour and we need you to cut this 20 page memo down to five pages or what have you. Um, one of the, the most gratifying things for me was a number of senior officials at Treasury who uh, we, I had a friendly working relationship with everybody. And we really had to because we worked together so closely and we kind of had the proxy of the secretary. Uh, but a number of folks who left, one to go to the CIA, one to go to to HUD and, and to other agencies in very senior roles, um, who perhaps we may have disagreed once or twice on how to do things at Treasury, called me very soon after getting there and said, uh, can you please talk to our front office and tell them how to run things because uh, you all do it best. And and that felt very good to know that we were uh, adding value and and helping make folks' lives easier, even though, well, let me say this: we help make the secretary's life easier. We probably made other people's lives pretty hard in some situations.
0: Yeah, Th- that process though is enormously important, and I only participated in it uh, to the extent that I was contributing to memos that were, you know, making their way to the president's desk. Um, of two types, uh, you know, one type would be just sort of the regular update, like here's what's happening on Capitol Hill, because I was in the office of legislative affairs. And then the other type of memo would be a, either a decision memo or a memo that's leading up to a decision point. And by the time the president or the treasury secretary are, you know, considering a decision memo, um, you know, these are the toughest problems people have have weighed in and they disagree with one another. That's why it's making its way all the way to the top. Um, you you saw a lot of those memos. You edited those. You got them into a place that, you know, would enable the secretary to make a good decision. And in doing so, you worked with a lot of high level, experienced, intelligence staff. What did you see the staff who were most successful at making their case do um, that informed the secretary and put him, in that case, in the best position to make the best decision? I think the most
1: successful people in that endeavor were the ones who could, one, convince you that they were right. And that would often be by using persuasive argument, but more importantly, empirical data and evidence to show why they were right. Uh, But also having a global view. One One of the challenges we had in that office was you would get folks who were so deep on a particular issue that they didn't care or, or didn't have really visibility into any other perspectives. All they cared about is their one issue that in some cases they've been working on for 20 years. Um, and they're the, the director of an office, the deputy assistant secretary, or in some cases uh, an assistant secretary or even undersecretary, And they are coming to you from the perspective of their specialty. And they are some of the foremost experts in the world on this particular issue. But there are a number of offices at the Treasury Department and the secretary has to speak on behalf of the entire department. So there were a number of cases where we had to have mediations and and have people work things out before the secretary was going to be speaking publicly or taking a position on behalf of the administration or the Treasury Department. Um, And and it was tough sometimes. So the people who were most effective were the ones who um, would essentially provide uh, backup and and data and um, justification for their position.
0: Yeah. Um, in 2015, you then left the Treasury Department and you re-entered the private sector. You joined JPMorgan Chase and served for five years as the managing director in government relations and corporate responsibility engagement. Um, I have to ask—I didn't—I didn't know this before we started talking. Your dad was also in the financial services industry, so how did it feel to make your way there?
1: It—it it was. Uh... It was very cool, but it was not planned at all. It wasn't as if I grew up saying, like, I want to, you know, go work at Chase just like my dad did. Although I will say my we come from a Chase-heavy family where my father had been a banker there for a very long time. We knew friends of the family who my father had worked with over years who, you know, became like family to us. And we, um, my brother and I, had both been tellers at Chase Manhattan Bank at the time uh, at different points in our lives. Me, when I was a, it was a summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college uh, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. So it was, uh, it was pretty cool to go back in a senior role and, and in, a, in a role where I'm working with the CEO and the operating committee and the board of directors uh, and the heads of different lines of business. Uh, so it, it was a pretty cool experience for me.
0: Yeah. And since you're returning to the private sector after a good amount of time in the public sector, you know, what did you take with you to JPMC that you know you know you didn't a skill set or an experience and a set of insights that you didn't have before you'd been a staffer
1: a lot and I went in concerned that people would think I was a political hack and that I had no business being there and I wasn't a Wall Street person but there was quickly a a strong appreciation for a political perspective and point of view and a number of things i brought with me were efficiency um finding and getting to the right person in an office it's not always the the head of an office or, or the head of an issue you find the person who does the work knows the the issue cold and where you can pick up the phone and in, in one conversation get to the the bottom of an issue quickly that is a huge value to principles to an organization um, and, and that's something I brought with me—just general political risk management and thinking about how you position the interest of the organization against its internal and external stakeholders. That was something that is just invaluable and, and something that I don't, I don't think you can teach. I think experience teaches people who work in politics, and, and often from messing it up, um, how to be how to look around the corner and really see two steps ahead <clears throat> and really. Um, protect the interest of an organization in a way that, um, uh, like I said, I just don't think you can teach. And I can think of a number of pretty politically uh, controversial issues um, like J.P. Morgan Chase's uh, position on um, investing in private prisons or in pipelines, uh, in the firearms industry, issues of race, um, minimum wage, all kind of different things that were just political lightning rods. And we had to figure out how to have an affirmative position uh, as an organization, but also to take into consideration uh, the perspectives of all of these different stakeholders, internal and external.
0: You know, you mentioned uh, learning by mistakes. And I I have a question that I love to ask people. It's a segment I call In the Vault. Um, Can you tell me about a time that you just screwed up as a staff member? Um, And, you know, tell me the story, but also how you recovered and what you learned from it.
1: Jim, you can't call it in the vault on a recorded <laughs> podcast that's going to go out to all kinds of people. It's but. supposed
0: to tempt you into telling me more. No, <laughs> I just
1: told you about my political risk management. Uh, you got to wake up early in the morning than that. But uh, so I'll tell a story and I'll lawyer it up a little bit by, by not sharing specific details. So there was a time it was I want to say it was Martin Luther King uh, Day weekend. 2013. So at the time we were in the transition between Tim Geithner had just uh, resigned at the end of the first term, of uh, President Obama's first term. Um, Deputy Secretary Neil Wolin was acting secretary um, for about a month, maybe a little more. And Jack Lou, I think, had been identified, maybe even nominated, but hadn't had his confirmation hearing yet um, to be the next secretary to follow Tim Geithner. And there were people on my team, on the uh, executive secretary's team, who had to be on on duty. One of my special assistants every weekend, uh, somebody was on duty. So if anything came up, if you had to print something, fax something, email something, if you had to get a particular document or whatever it was to the White House, to the secretary, uh, you were those people were either in the office or, or nearby and could get there quickly and, and handle things. Um, it was the holiday itself, and something went wrong. Um, <laughs> I, I I, and my team and I had messed something up where um, the secretary, uh, the acting secretary, Neil Wallen at the time, had uh, an important uh, event that he was prepping for and he didn't have the right documents because we had messed it up. I had to get in. Uh, I just sold my car. I had to get in a car to go. These little smart cars uh, that you rent. And I was pushing this thing to the limit to get to his house, um, got a speeding ticket. Uh, It was just a a camera. I don't know how I got... up to a speed fast enough to speed in that little car but I did um, and almost got shot by the Secret service when I like jumped out of the car in a in a huff and was running up to his front door and they they weren't used to seeing me because it was a different detail than Tim Geithner typically had um, and uh, it was it was one of my more humbling and embarrassing <laughs> uh, days but it, we we tried to clean up the mess um, but it was it was one of those mia culpa I'm sorry you know let us know what else you need but we know we messed up kind of moments
0: uh did you make it under the wire did, uh, did you get the yeah, materials I, there in time we did we did he you know he nobody was happy but <laughs> everything got
1: done <laughs> that they needed to get done so uh all's well that ends well
0: uh um thank you for sharing that i know discussing painful work screw-ups is is uh never fun um the uh I want to talk about um, your leadership at the Black Economic Alliance. But before I get there, um, I do want to uh, talk about a thread that runs through your life um, and I imagine informs your current work, and that is the mentorship of people of color. During your time in the Obama administration, you were part of what was then the White House Mentors Program, which was a predecessor to My Brother's Keeper. At JPMC, you championed diversity, equity and inclusion as chair of the firm's coalition of black managing directors known as the Black Economic Forum. Um, You also sat on the firm's diversity advisory committee, led the corporate responsibilities, equity and inclusion working group. And you've served as an ambassador and mentor for the fellowship initiative, which is a leadership development program for young men of color. You've served in. A number of different organizations, public sector, private sector, that are trying to do better uh, by people of color, and and importantly improve themselves as organizations uh, by being more inclusive and providing opportunity more equitably. What do you see that has worked in attracting people of color, retaining them, and elevating them to positions of leadership? I think it's. Being
1: authentic, both as an individual and as an organization, about where you are and where you're not and and asking people to be themselves uh, and adding a new level of perspective and diversity of thought, of experience uh, to an organization and making better, more well-rounded decisions because of it. So I think when, when I've seen organizations do it best, they are um, welcome to new ideas. They call themselves out when they... Recognize something that needs to be fixed or changed, and uh, I, I've appreciated a number of the places that I've worked. Uh, some have done it better than others, but um, I, I think that is that is a key to just um, authenticity is a key to being effective um, in in these efforts. And and for me, you know, a lot of it came from um, like I talked about my time at uh, Howard University School of Law, both the the responsibility to pay it forward and and help people who um, are less well off than you are or, or you know, people who have kind of made the way for you. Um, but also uh, we, we call the Howard University School of Law HUSL hustle. So we are all um, hustlers in that we work extremely hard. You never just are doing one job. You're always doing, you know, 10 things at once and, and you're making things happen uh, in new ways wherever you go. So um, I, I'd say that's uh, that's how I think about it.
0: And when you are mentoring uh, someone, what advice or perspective do you share with them? Uh, particularly, let's say someone who looks at you and admires your career because there's so much to admire about it, and thinks I'm interested in working in the law potentially, or in you know in politics and public service, or in the financial services sector. Right? You've succeeded in a lot of different, very um, very competitive um uh, industries and you've gotten into very rarefied air in all of them so how do you you know advise young people who look at your career and and may want to emulate it so i tell my three typical and main pieces of advice
1: are work hard do right by people and take risks take calculated risks especially when you're younger the work hard part is i've I never been the smartest person in most of the rooms i've been in um but i always will give my full effort and, and I will always leave it all on the field. And, and whatever the outcome is, uh, I will never question whether or not I gave it 100 percent effort. And I tell um, people I'm mentoring all the time that will help you make um, peace with a lot of things that are out of your control in life, just knowing that you gave 100 percent effort um, doing right by people. Uh, this, you know, Jim, from being in politics, relationships matter. Perhaps more than any, you know, of the substance of what you've done, um, where you've been, and, and what you can do, a lot of times relationships will make or break uh, opportunities, doors that open or close for you. And there are so many relationships that have come back, um, and and people you thought you'd never come across again, and somehow either you're working with them, you're working for them, or they are in a position to be helpful or harmful to you, um, in a, either directly in, in the job you're in or as a partner. Whatever the case is, I tell people, you know, these. These relationships are long and think about the way that you interact with people as a brand that you're making for yourself. So I always want people to uh, look at me as an honest broker, a hard worker, somebody who they want on a team. And I tell people the same thing. Don't ever don't ever write somebody off and think, um, well, I'm never going to have to talk to this person again. And I'm going to treat them poorly because I'm never going to have to deal with them again. One, you just shouldn't operate like that anyway. But two, it will come back to you. So do yourself a favor and make sure it comes back to you in a positive way.
0: That is a great set of advice. Um, it doesn't surprise me that you're executive secretary and had to boil down <laughs> complex things into uh, understandable and actionable um, bullets uh, for anybody. Um, let me. What about uh, you know your mentors? Uh, is there somebody who stands out uh, as someone who you know helped you along the way?
1: I've been extremely lucky throughout my life and career to have a, a number of mentors earliest on probably my brother who um, I, I followed to to college and taught me the importance of doing well my first semester so that I'd have a strong, my first year, so that I'd have a strong um, academic foundation to build on. And um, But really in my career, I think the most transformational is somebody I mentioned earlier, Jay Johnson, who just saw, took an interest in me as a, he, he, he likes to take credit for discovering me, quote unquote, uh, which I appreciate. And uh, there was a really cool time where when he was, after he was sworn in, so Jay Johnson had been um, general counsel of the Department of Defense during the first term of the Obama administration, left, went back to Paul Weiss for a few months, and then was called back to be Secretary of Homeland Security for the second term. And Soon after he came in as uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, he had a, a meeting with my boss Jack Lou, and I asked uh, Secretary Lew's, uh body person and the Secret Service if I could lead Secretary Johnson up from uh, where they lead you know other secretaries in to meet with with Secretary Liu. And I did, And he popped out of the elevator and he was like, David. <laughs> and it was just it was this cool moment where all of these things, everything from him teaching me, um, how to dress when I was uh, a summer associate at a law firm and and quite honestly, you know, judged differently because at the time I had, I was the only summer associate from Howard University School of Law. Most other folks are from Ivy League schools. I was one of three black summers out of 87. Um, I had dreadlocks at the time down past, you know, down halfway down my back. I, I couldn't stick out more if I tried. Um, so Secretary Johnson was very good about um, helping me make a very good impression on people with everything about my appearance, but even little things like sending people thank you letters. After um, he, I remember a very embarrassing moment when I was a summer associate. He did, uh, Jay Johnson had taken us on a number of summer associates on a tour of the courts of New York State in New York City. And maybe two, three days later, he called me down to his office and he said, David, you know, did you have a good time on the tour the other day? I said, I had a great time. It was amazing. Thank you. He said, Well, that's interesting because I've gotten thank you notes or emails from every person who was on that trip, except for you. Um, And I was mortified. Um, But it taught me a lesson at age 24 and going into my third year law school uh, about how to follow up with people right after. And it's something that I've kind of made a signature of mine and something that I will never forget. So there were so many things like that throughout my career that he and other mentors have taught me. And, And he's just been somebody who any important professional decision I have to make. I go see him as one of the first people and get his input and advice, and he has never steered me wrong. So uh, I've been extremely fortunate to have a number of mentors over time, but Jay Johnson has really been the most uh, transformational for me.
0: Well, and isn't, like, just to take that note-taking example, it's so important for a mentor to see who the person really is. Like, clearly, you are a good person. Clearly, you were, you know, grateful for the experience. You just had to be told to write the note. That's That's all. Right. That's, That's all. Sure. It, it's just like it's the tiniest thing at the end. And when you're dealing with people like that, we appreciate it. You know, we appreciate the little the heads up to just do that small thing at the end. It makes all the difference.
1: And I think about this, that's totally right. And I think about the same thing when I do that now. And it's funny, I find myself in the position that he was in with, um, you know, younger folks I've worked with throughout my career. And, and I see the same level of, of appreciation because they see that it's coming from a good place. I'm not trying to embarrass them and I'm not trying to make them, well, I am trying to make them feel bad in the moment so that they will remember it like I did and and never do it again.
0: Yeah. Um, So let's talk about the Black Economic Alliance. Uh, I'm gonna, rather than uh, read a description of it, I'd like uh, you to talk about the organization, its mission and what you're doing.
1: Sure, so the Black Economic Alliance is a coalition of business leaders, black business leaders and allies, uh, aligned uh, advocates who are all focused on improving economic conditions for black people through public policy, um, advocacy and engagement with political leaders and the business community uh, leaders as well. And uh, it's really an organization uh, that there is no other organization like. Uh, it was started a little bit after the 2016 election, was formally stood up in 2018. And the thought was uh, to use the collective uh, knowledge, experience, expertise, uh, even dollars in, in, in the case of contributing to political candidates um, and really networks of people um, Black CEOs and senior executives to uh, advocate for and essentially, um, uh, essentially affect better outcomes for Black folks um, economically, with a particular focus on the areas of work,
0: wages, and wealth. So you are leading an organization that um, a, you know at a time that is both excruciatingly painful, um, but also has. a, a, a sort of an optimism that there's an opportunity for bigger change than we thought possible a year ago. Um, what, when you are engaging with CEOs uh, and your members or, or organizations that may be considering joining, what are you telling them today that they need to do um, in a bigger, broader way than maybe, as I said, was the, we even thought possible six months ago?
1: So you're absolutely right that we're at a moment in history that uh, I think is an inflection point, and I hope we are never the same, and I hope we are the better for it after this year of 2020, Um, but particularly the moment around race. um, And the, the way that the conversation has changed to me is twofold. One, what I tell and what our organization tells CEOs, political leaders, everybody who we engage with is that everybody has a role to play. Everybody has a platform that they can use to, to undo and dismantle a system of injustice and inequities that have disproportionately disadvantaged black people in every facet of American life um, for the entirety of our country's history. And what we all can do is look at not not if, but how systemic racism has and is showing up um, in their place of business, how they do business, who they're hiring their internal culture, their external uh, engagement and investment in communities, even with businesses. Um, so it, it is about taking a fresh look at how these things are showing up and where you have levers to pull to start to undo um, some of the systems that I think we've all just unfortunately um, accepted for way too long and, and to say this is no longer acceptable and we all have a role to play in dismantling these systems and rebuilding um, more inclusive, more resilient um, stronger systems of uh, finance, education, and really opportunity
0: across the board. And how do you, you know, given the breadth of change that is possible um or that we need, uh, how do you prioritize um you know that which you are calling upon um, CEOs and policymakers to to grapple with? That
1: is challenging because, one of the interesting phenomenons about this time has been the sense of urgency that uh, I, I have never felt before, especially from such a large coalition of people, particularly outside of the black community, um, to solve the ills of racism overnight. Um, and, and I think, again, I, I, I harken back to what I just said, which is telling people to look at the opportunities they have Um, to change things in their daily lives. Not everybody has to quit their job and go, you know, join the NAACP chapter or the National Urban League or the Black Economic Alliance and, you know, work full time on righting the wrongs of, of slavery and systemic racism. But what we, I think everybody can do and should be doing is having a paradigm shift and looking at their daily engagement with race in a different way. There's a question that people used to ask um, that I think people know the answer to. So they no longer ask, uh, which is why do black people always talk about race? And I think the events of the past six months have given us a a pretty painful look into why um, black people in particular are always talking about race, because it's something that we interact with every day, all day. And um, and we wish we didn't have to, but um, i think there's a greater appreciation for that experience from people from outside of the black community and i i am very encouraged by um how broad of a coalition of support and engagement there's been from the business community um public policy and and the nonprofit community around everybody playing an active role uh and in, in changing that going forward
0: yeah i um Uh, To to, to use a a lousy analogy in in picking up on uh, an inflection point, you know those those old posters where it just looked like squiggly lines until you stared at it long enough and then there was like a picture inside of it? Yes. I feel like um, white Americans have just seen squiggly lines for so long um, and the black community has forever been saying, what are you missing? Because they saw what was that they saw the picture, and that's why I'm so hopeful that we're at an inflection point that hopefully we have a broad enough coalition that sees the picture now that once you see it, you can't unsee it. That's and right. you can't and you can't uh, not react to it because the picture is very ugly and it needs addressing in the in the most urgent way it does.
1: and And I'll say this. I am very hopeful that this time really is different. One of the hard things about this is a a lot of um, black people especially feel like we have been at a place like this before uh, and there's been short term engagement, but not long term engagement. And and I'm believing in hope over experience that this time really is different. Uh, And like you said, everybody will will see um, the reality of uh, the effects of systemic racism in a different way that we can never unsee. Uh, But there is a level of skepticism that this is, uh, you know, kind of the the flavor of the month and that it may be short lived. So uh, I hope that is not true. But I know uh, I think that's what's pushing a bit of the sense of urgency is that people feel like we have a window to make some change now that could be, you know, long term, sustainable and fundamental. But if we don't make this change now, we might not have the um, level of buy-in that we have and engagement from such a, a, a large coalition of supporters uh, and, and others who want to help. Um, but like I said, I, I absolutely hope that is not the case, um, but obviously only time will tell.
0: Yeah. And and the I mean, even the history of progress is, you know, a ton of work goes in over decades and we take a big step forward and then there's some retrenchment. That's right. So, you know, even in the most optimistic scenario where we get uh, a, a political alignment where we can have big change, no matter what. It can't be solved in a single act, right? I mean, y- your point about do you know doing your daily life like that's critically important. Also, we need policy change, but we also need people change, person change. Um, you know, uh, so it, right. it it actually keeps going uh, year in and year out. David, I uh, I so appreciate your time, and I could uh, really talk to you for another hour. Um, I do have a couple of last questions for you um, that aren't related to or your current work, um, but I have this idea that you know, one day if I came into the lottery and got all the permissions, I would build a building dedicated to staffers and call it the Staffer Hall of Fame uh, <laughs> on the National Mall. Um, you've worked with a lot of great staffers. Um, I'm curious, who would you nominate for the Stafford Hall of Fame?
1: Uh, Jim, you're going to get me in trouble. I, I, I have to name one person, that means I don't name other folks. <laughs> um, you can, so, I'll give you two. Uh, well, let's say this. I've worked with a, a lot of phenomenal folks uh, alongside them, for them, with them, and 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 some of them have been on my team. Um, somebody who I think w- would be an obvious pick and a unanimous vote for the Stafford Hall of Fame is um, a, a woman who is now a very good friend of mine who came in to uh, be my chief of staff as um, on the state and local government relations team at JPMorgan Chase. Her name is Faith Leach. And she uh, came to JPMorgan Chase after being chief of staff to the deputy mayor for a greater economic opportunity, Courtney Snowden, in Washington, D.C. And after I left JPMorgan Chase, she became the chief of staff for the... Um, Global philanthropy group at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. So um, I'm sorry for the J.P. Morgan Chase Foundation. So uh, she has quickly uh, just been. Uh, she is the 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 Hall of Famer because the quintessential staffer is somebody who thinks ahead. Uh, you know, people often say they expect me to be a mind reader. She is a mind reader. She uh, knows what you want sometimes before you want it, and she can get it done more quickly and more efficiently. Um, than you can. And, and there were so many times working with her that um, after having a conversation with her, she would come back with a set of ideas or a proposal or a deck, whatever it was. And I'm just like, yes, 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 that's what I wanted. I, like I couldn't articulate it, but that's what I wanted. Um, and so I think the ability to be that efficient and, and also the, and I think one of the, particularly for a chief of staff, senior advisor, but staffer generally, I think one of the most important and, and impactful value adds is making everybody's life easier. If you are the hub of a team um, where your involvement takes steps out, makes things quicker, and helps people boil down to the, the core of an issue uh, and get right to it and, and get things done more quickly and more efficiently, I think that is the quintessential role of a staffer, um, and she has that down cold. So uh, she would be my my choice, and I'm gonna have to apologize to everybody
0: else who I didn't mention. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you um, very much. And David, again, thank you for giving us your time and thank you for what you do. Um, It's just so important. And I know we at Global Strategy Group who get to work with you on some of it um, find it extremely meaningful and rewarding. um, But, you know, you are a leader of the type that we love to support. And so um, thank you for what you do. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. It's been fun. Thanks for having me on. Anytime. Well, friends. The clock's just buzzed four times and the Marine sentry has left the West Wing, which means this episode of Staffer is officially adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.